This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 160. Greetings, metamorphs! Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you and keep you up to date on my life and my writing. So let's get started with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 18 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Eight months ago, shortly before a rookie cop named Michael Pirelli arrived in Metamore City, an Imperial diplomatic shuttle landed at a secret military base deep in the Northlands. Lord Richter, the god of war and the Empire's minister of defense, had come in response to a report from the base's commander. Richter went inside, to the armored medical chamber in the heart of the facility, where he found the heavy steel door blown outward off its hinges. The high-tech sarcophagus inside the chamber sat open, its occupant missing, tufts of black fur still stuck to its sensor leads, and a mephitic stench hung in the air. Two of the guards, they said, were being treated for minor chemical burns, after being sprayed in the face. Lord Richter asked the attending physician if the chamber's occupant had said anything when he woke up. The doctor said that his patient had been ranting like a madman, something about darkness and fire and blood. The doctor gave the order to sedate the patient, and that was when he made his escape. As Richter pointed out, the doctor shouldn't have been surprised— After all, his patient had been asleep for twenty-seven years. The base's captain had sent out search parties to find their escaping charge, but Richter advised her not to waste any more time with it. The missing man was a grandmaster illusionist, and trained in earth magic and shamanic magic as well. They'd have better luck tracking a ghost. Richter took a copy of their security footage and medical readouts, then placed a call by satellite phone. It's me he said. He's out. The woman at the other end of the line sighed. The sleep keeps getting shorter, she said. What woke him this time? No idea, Richter said. But if history's any indication, he's headed for Metamore. And chaos is riding in with him. The Lost and the Least a novel of Metamore City. Written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 18 Sunday, May 20th Catherine. Someone was calling her name. Kate could not identify the voice, but she felt she ought to recognize it. Something about it nagged at the deep recesses of her memory, something both familiar and frustratingly out of reach. Catherine. She sat up in bed, 
looking around at her darkened bedroom in the faint light of the street lamps outside her window. There was no one here, but the voice seemed to be coming from somewhere close. You do not realize your importance. She rose from her bed and left the room. She entered a long, straight hallway of ancient stone. Mage lights glowed purple and green in their sconces along the walls. She walked forward, following the sound of the voice, the stones rough and cold beneath her feet. You have a great gift. She came to a spot where the stone wall had crumbled away. She stepped through into a chamber filled with bones. Skulls filled the shelves and the walls. Stone boxes on the floors were filled with arm and leg bones, stacked neatly like firewood. A hole gaped in the center of the room, and a staircase spiraled downward into darkness. The center pole of the staircase was made of vertebrae. The steps were made of hands and feet, attached to long, curving ribs that were too large for any human. Come to me, the voice echoed from the darkness below. Driven by a force she could not name, Kate followed it. Blackness surrounded her as she descended the staircase. Faint images flickered in the distance, suspended against the dark. She saw a ring of cloaked and hooded figures gathered around a magic circle. She saw a theriomorph, a man with the face of a skunk, his one dark eye glittering as he stared at her. A long, hideous knife wound ran over the socket where the other eye should have been, and it looked like it hadn't healed properly. She saw Captain Shaw grinning as they extended their hand to Kate. She saw a woman dressed in white mourning garb, whose dress and veil were covered in silver spiderwebs. Railings of bone rose up around the staircase, huge, curving ribs that intermittently blocked her view of the darkness. She kept walking, and the ribs became steel bars, and then she was walking past holding cells at the Precinct 9 station house. She looked into the holding cells as she passed, studying their occupants. Here was Fisher, his fine linen suit riddled with a thousand bullet wounds. There was Ezekiel Kapler, a menacing grin on his nightmare face, leering at her as she passed. She saw Malcolm Ardvalos, looking impeccable as he sat on his cot, reading a book titled The Fall of Kings. We finally got you, Kate said feeling a surge of vindictive triumph. Malcolm looked up in mild surprise. Oh, hello, Miss Katane. But you're not here for me. You need to speak with the gentleman in solitary. He pointed further down the hall. Kate looked. There was a heavy steel door at the end of the cell block. A tiny reinforced window was set in the door, but inside Kate saw only darkness. The door was bolted shut with a very imposing-looking lock. Catherine, the voice echoed from the darkness on the other side of the door. Kate felt a tug inside her, drawing her in. She tried the handle, but the bolt was set, and the door would not open. A voice came from the cell to her right. The door won't open without the key. Kate looked over her shoulder. The blonde thrall she had killed stood by the door of her cell, her hands gripping the bars. She had a face again, young and fairly pretty, but a little too gaunt. 
a little too sunken around the eyes. Her neck was a mess of seeping vampire bites, slowly oozing blood. Kate looked down at her hands, then back up at the thrall. I don't have a key, she said. The woman sneered in derision. The key isn't something you have. You are the key. Kate looked down at her hands again. The golden undertones of her skin suddenly grew brighter, until her hands shone and sparkled like brass. She placed her finger over the keyhole, and as she watched, her fingertips stretched and flattened, forming into the shape of a key. She inserted it into the lock. It fit perfectly. Catherine! Another voice, a louder one this time. It echoed all around her, reverberating through the walls. Catherine, whispered the voice behind the door. Catherine, come to me. Catherine, wake up, the loud voice said. What? Kate muttered. We will do great things together, said the voice behind the door. You are still asleep, the loud voice said. You have to wake up. Kate looked at the door in confusion. But the door... The voice behind the door whispered to her more earnestly now, cajoling her. Catherine, this is your destiny. Do not open the door, the loud voice insisted. Wake up, Catherine! Wake up now! Kate sat up with a gasp. She was back in her bedroom, her skin soaked in a cold sweat. Her heart pounded in her chest, and the headache she'd had on and off since the concussion came back with a vengeance. She looked around in alarm, but she was alone. She reached over to her nightstand, flipped on the lamp, then pulled her pocket pistol from the drawer. She waited, listening closely, but heard nothing. Quietly, she rose from her bed and checked the rest of the apartment. The bathroom, the kitchen, the living room, her magic lab and the spare bedroom. Everything was normal. Her usual clutter was all where she had left it. The front door was still locked and chained, with no sign of forced entry. The windows were all sealed as well. Kate went back to the kitchen, got a glass of water, then carried it to the cabinet in the bathroom, where she used it to swallow three tablets of headache medicine. For a long moment, she looked at the bottle of prescription sleep aids that Dr. Tamlin had prescribed her, but she gritted her teeth and shut the cabinet without touching them. She used the toilet, washed her hands, then washed her face, first with hot water and then with cold. Fucking dreams, she muttered. She went back into her bedroom and looked at the clock. It was almost a quarter to five. No sense in going back to sleep, she told herself. Not if I'm going to deal with weird shit like that, anyway. She put on her running gear and went through her warm-up stretches, paying special attention to her breathing. She was a little stiff at first, but with patience and focus, she gradually limbered up. When she was ready, she filled a water bottle, stuck her keys in one pocket and her phone in the other, and headed outside. The first Skyway level wasn't the safest part of town for a woman alone, especially not before daybreak, but Kate wasn't overly concerned. Her landlady, Ms. Fallon, was a powerful succubus and a veteran of the Dreamlands War, and she kept the territory around Serenity Arms free of predators, human and otherwise. 
Kate ran a loop around the massive edifice of Hughes Tower, past little shops and liquor stores, row houses and apartments. The full circuit around the tower was just about two kilometers. After taking the first lap at an easy jog, Kate doubled her pace. Her heart started to pound, and again she focused carefully on her breathing. In through her nose, out through her mouth, deep, full breaths from the diaphragm. The rush of air into and out of her lungs made a steady rhythm that harmonized with the thud of her shoes against the sidewalk. She immersed herself in the purity of immediate physical sensation. Her breath, her footfalls, the blood pounding in her ears, the sweat pouring down her face and chest and back. There was nothing else. She ran another lap, then a third, then a fourth. As she started her fifth lap, she pushed herself to go faster. By now she would normally have hit her runner's high, that exhilarating flood of endorphins that accompanied intense, sustained physical exertion. But this time, all she felt was the grueling slog of effort, the ache in her muscles, and the pounding of her heart. What's wrong with me? With that thought, she felt her chest tighten up, and her breath caught in her throat. She slowed down a little turned her attention to her breathing again, but she could feel the airways constricting like a claw squeezing inside her chest. She reached for her center, reached for calm, but every gasp for breath came harder. Worry turned to desperation. A nameless but now familiar fear began clawing at the back of her mind. Cursing inwardly, Kate came to a stop halfway through her lap on the opposite side of Hugh's tower from her apartment. She leaned up against the wall of a row house, closed her eyes, and thought about nothing but breathing. In, out, in, out, in, out. At last her heart slowed, her breathing eased, and the fear receded, replaced by a soul-deep exhaustion. She sank down to the pavement and put her head between her knees. Prophet, help me. There's something wrong with me. I've got to see a doctor. Running away won't help. Kate looked up in alarm. She hadn't noticed anyone approaching, but there, not two meters away from her, stood a theriomorph, a very short, wiry little man with the form of a skunk. He had a thick leather patch over his left eye, which was studded with three dirty, faceted stones, old gems or costume jewelry, it was hard to tell. He wore a ragged raincoat, a plain white t-shirt, a wrinkled pair of khakis, and a pair of army surplus boots. Everything looked like it could have been scavenged from thrift stores and charity piles. He also stank, which was unusual for a skunk morph. They usually learned early to keep firm control over their musk glands. Accidents were possible, but Kate had only ever seen them if the person was suffering from extreme anxiety or mental illness or both. The little man looked at Kate with his one dark, glittering eye. And then she noticed the scar protruding above and below his eye patch. She felt a shock of recognition. Who are you? she demanded. Murakir. He bowed to her in greeting. You can call me Murray. Kate couldn't bow in her current position, so she gave him a slow, wary nod. What do you mean running away won't help? Murray tapped the side of his head. With the dreams. 
I get them too. Kate stared at him, fear and anger fighting for control inside her. You were in my dream, she accused. What are you, an aniromancer? What the hell do you want? Murray lifted both hands in a placating gesture. Easy there. I didn't send your dream, I just got sucked into it. Like I said, I get them too. Kate rubbed at her forehead. Her headache was starting to come back. What are they? Someone was calling my name. Yes, Murray said darkly. And the next time it calls you, don't listen. I had to wake you up, and I almost wasn't in time. What? Kate shook her head, as if she could make the man's words more comprehensible if she rattled them into place. Back up. You're not making any sense. Murray sighed, massaging the bridge of his muzzle. What you had wasn't a normal dream. Look, you know about the Dreamlands, right? Kate nodded. The Dreamlands was one of the planes that ran alongside the Material Plane. It was the place fairies came from, and sometimes creatures from the Dreamlands wandered into the dreams of sleeping mortals. Yeah, she said. Are you saying that voice was some kind of fairy? I wish it were that simple, Murray said. But there are other planes that follow the same principle. They're close to our world, and when the barriers get weak, the beings on one plane can reach out and influence things on another plane. Murray's eye looked haunted. The thing in your dreams? The voice inside the prison? He pointed at his head again. I've been hearing it off and on for most of my life. That sent a chill running through Kate. What is it? she whispered. Murray's gaze grew distant. Something that needs to stay locked up. How do you know that? Kate rose slowly to her feet. Who are you? How did you find me? Murray rose as well, though not nearly as far. Kate stood more than thirty centimeters taller than he. The little skunk put both hands over his chest and bowed again. Excellent questions for another time, I'm afraid. I had meant to speak with you eventually, but this is not the place for it. There are eyes and ears everywhere. He glanced around uncertainly at the walls of the tower above them. Kate followed his gaze, but she didn't see anything out of the ordinary. He turned his attention back to Kate. I'll be in touch, he promised, as soon as I figure out a safe way to do it. Until then, whatever you do, don't follow the voice. The skunk man turned and hurried off down the sidewalk, pulling up the hood of his coat and cinching it close around his head. Kate watched him go, his head continuing to twitch this way and that, as if he expected to be attacked from three directions at once. This town, Kate muttered, is going fucking insane. Then she turned in the opposite direction, making her way slowly back to her apartment. Will followed a few paces behind, as Callie led Nathan Levy down to Silas's server room floor. He was an unassuming little guy, short and skinny, dark-haired, olive-skinned, with a furtive, jerky body language that reminded Will of a magpie. His head darted back and forth at his surroundings, his dark eyes wide. Holy blessed father of lights, Nate breathed. He took off his thick-rimmed eyeglasses, cleaned the lenses on his t-shirt, 
then put them back on. He turned in a slow circle, taking in the sight of the vast computer system. When Brian told me you needed a sysadmin, I never had dreamed. He trailed off, shaking his head in wonder. This place belongs to my mentor, Silas, Callie said. I need you to... Nate's head snapped back in her direction. Silas Kenning? he asked, as if the name belonged to a rock star. Uh, yeah? Callie frowned at Nate. Her eyes held that wary look that she sometimes got around salesmen and street preachers. Silas is a legend in the security biz, Nate said, grinning. I never dreamed I'd be working with him. When do I get to meet him? Callie put her hands on her hips. When you help me get him back. Somebody kidnapped him. I want you to use his system to help me find out where he is. Nate's expression turned from fanish excitement to horror. He covered his mouth with both hands. Holy shit, he whispered. Was it? He glanced furtively left and right, then leaned in closer to her. Was it Big Mama? Callie's brow knitted in confusion. Who? You know? Nate twitched his head upward toward the higher levels of the city. The immortal ruler who watches our every move. The confusion on Callie's face gave way to scorn. Majestrix Kaya? What would she want with Silas? Don't say her name, she'll hear you! Nate exclaimed. He whipped his head around, as if the Majestrix might appear at that very moment. He continued, in a softer tone. That's the thing. She's a twelve-thousand-year-old spirit with the power of an entire pantheon. Who knows what she wants? Callie sighed. I really don't think it's the Majestrix. This feels like a street-side fight. Street rats have been disappearing all over the city, Will said. We think Silas may have learned something about it, and it made him a target. Nate scratched at the three-day stubble on his chin. Could be, could be. His eyes went distant for a moment, then he gave a sharp little nod. All right, I'm in. Let's see what we can find out. He went around to each of the server cabinets in turn, checking connections and status lights, all the while muttering to himself about what he was looking at. When he was apparently satisfied, he headed back upstairs and sat down at Silas's control station. I'm going to need a pot of coffee, two liters of lemon soda, three turkey sandwiches, and a bag of potato chips, he said, cracking his knuckles. This little lady and I are going to get acquainted with each other. Ew, Will muttered. You've got it, Callie said. She pulled a wad of bills out of her wallet and handed them to Will. She smiled and pecked him on the lips. Get something for us while you're at it, will you, Tiger? Will smiled back. He couldn't help it when Callie kissed him. Sure thing. Be back in a bit. By the time Will returned from his grocery run, Nate was deep into communion with the machine. He barely responded when Will set his food down on the desk beside him. Will decided not to bother trying to make conversation with the man. He went over to the dinner table, where Callie had a bunch of papers spread out. The runner was standing over them, shuffling between them and looking back and forth. As Will got closer, he could see that most of them were maps of some kind. Is that the city? he asked. Callie nodded. This one's a map of the subway system from about sixty years ago. She slid another map from underneath it. And here's the subway today. Some of the lines are missing, Will observed. 
Exactly. As the buildings got taller, the street got darker. Some of the subways went under parts of town that weren't safe to be in, so they shut them down and walled them off. Nobody's used them in years. Which would make them a pretty good place to hide an evil conspiracy that preys on street rats, Will said, assuming they were scarier than whatever got the subways shut down in the first place. Yep. Callie ran a hand through her poof of hair in frustration. There's so many of these things, though. We need something to narrow it down. You're not just going to trust your luck to find the right one? Will asked. Callie shook her head emphatically. My luck works great for me. I don't trust it to work for Silas. Will came around the table, put his arm around Callie in a side hug. After a moment, she leaned back and rested her head against his. We'll get him back, Will said softly. Callie put her hand over Will's and gripped it. Thanks, Tiger. Nate sat up abruptly, leaning in toward one of the three monitors. Hello, what have we here? Callie stepped out of Will's embrace and hurried over to the control station. You found something? Could be, yeah. Nate was scrolling through three separate screens of text and images now, flipping back and forth between them at high speed. His eyes darted left, right, and center, his lips moving silently. Will went over to join them. What is it? Looks like you were right, Nate said. Mr. Kenning was on the trail of a conspiracy. He pointed to the left screen. These are financial transfers in and out of various shell corporations and holding companies. It's the kind of thing the syndicate does all the time, but none of these businesses have connections to the vamps. How do you know that? Will asked. Because keeping an eye on the vamps is what my people do. He pointed to the middle screen. This is recent traffic at a set of virtual dead drops Mr. Kenning identified. The sites were all set up with money funneled through one or more of these shell corps. The contents are encrypted, so we can't see what kinds of messages they're passing, but there is a lot of data getting moved around here. Again, no sign of syndicate fingerprints on the sites. But, he pointed at the third screen, these are news and police reports about attacks on syndicate interests. Everything from nuisance lawsuits to theft to bombings. Our man Silas was very thorough. And he's time-stamped everything. Nate brought up another window on the third screen, showing a graph with two separate trend lines. Every time there's an attack, we see a spike in data transfers in the days leading up to it. They're using the dead drops to plan their hits, Will said. He turned to Callie. It's like you said, someone's going after the Reds. Callie didn't look excited about being right. Her brow was furrowed in thought, and she started chewing one of her fingernails. Nate, is there anything in the dead drops the night before Silas was taken? Nate scrolled up through the list in the middle window. Some, not a lot. Any way we can decrypt it? Nate shook his head. They're using the best encrypt scheme on the market. Without a private key, it would take centuries to break it, even if I put the whole server floor on it. Callie started pacing back and forth, her head down. Can we do anything to connect these dead drops to real places? Find out where and when somebody's using them? Nate frowned. Maybe. They're probably using an onion router to access the sites, but I can get the system working on traffic analysis. If we get a few days of high activity, I can probably come up with a list of likely places the requests are coming from. Do it. And send me an alert the next time there's a big spike in activity. 
We may not know what's coming, but at least we'll know to be looking for it. Aye, aye, boss. Callie wandered back over to the kitchen area. She poured herself a glass of water, drank it, then sat up on the counter, putting her head in her hands. Will went over to her and put a hand on her shoulder. You've been working on this nonstop since last night, he said. You need food and sleep. Callie sighed. Yeah, you're right. She jutted her chin at the little computer cracker on the far side of the loft. I'm not going to leave this guy alone with Silas's baby, though. I can stay, Will offered. He gestured over at Silas's bed. If you don't think Silas will mind me sleeping here. Callie's lip quirked up at one corner. That bed's big enough for two, you know. Will blushed. Um, Callie? Callie winced. Sorry, sorry. I'm not trying to push, I swear. It just slipped out. She slid off the counter, stretched, and yawned. If I'm being honest, I probably won't get much sleep here anyway. I'm going to keep wanting to do something. She paused, then added, To find Silas, I mean. Yeah, I figured, Will said, still blushing. He gave her a quick hug and a peck on the lips. Go home. Rest. I'll see you tomorrow. All right. Thanks, Will. She reached up and touched his cheek, her eyes uncharacteristically serious. I mean it. Thanks. Will took her hand and kissed the back of it. You're welcome. Callie gathered her things, put her helmet under her arm, and headed for the lift. Before stepping inside, she turned around and looked back at the room one more time. Will forced a smile and gave her a thumbs up. Then she stepped inside, and the lift doors slid shut behind her. And that's the end of Chapter 18. Come back next time for Chapter 19, when Kate discovers a new avenue for her investigation. Now it's time to check in on my writing endeavors. Here's your weekly writing report. Well, folks, August has come and gone, and somehow I didn't get any new writing done. I wrote 2,709 words over five days, but that was all just scripts for this podcast. On one level, this is honestly baffling to me. August is usually a very productive month for me. Mel is away at Burning Man, so in theory, I should have time to sink deep into my writing every evening. I've had long periods of time to myself, especially on the weekends. You'd think I'd be getting tons of writing done. So, what have I been doing instead? Well, I've been going to sleep earlier than I used to, for one. Where I used to regularly get around six hours of sleep a night— I'm finding that I now need closer to eight in order to do my best work. As I've said before, I've been given a lot more responsibility at work this year, and I'm finding that I need to be sharper, more rested, and more alert, so I can handle those increased responsibilities. When I start getting ready for bed at 9 instead of 10.30 or 11, it takes away a lot of time that I might have once used for writing. I've also been spending more time with my dog, Marco. We're taking longer walks now, both because I need the exercise and because I'm feeling the need to spend time with him. 
Once a week, we go out to the farm, which is almost a 40-minute drive each way, where I throw the ball around for him and visit Dulcie's grave. And if I can be really honest, I think the biggest thing is just my emotional state. This year has taken a lot out of me. We lost Dulcie, and that grief is healing, but it's still there. Getting married was wonderful and amazing, but it brought its own stresses, too. Work is taking more out of me, even as my career is advancing. Money is perpetually tight, and it feels like we're always broke. For the last couple of weeks, I've been dealing with some health problems, both with myself and with Marco, and that's been its own kind of stress. And on top of all that, I'm missing Mel harder this year than I ever have before. I feel drained, beaten up, and turned inside out. And then I come on here, and I have to tell you guys how I've been getting nowhere creatively, and then I feel like a failure, too. I wish I had something upbeat and positive to say about all this, but the truth is that I'm having a really hard time right now. Sometimes it's really freaking hard to put aside all the other stuff that's going on and focus on my writing. Sometimes I feel really discouraged. Sometimes the world feels like it's too much. All I can say is that I'm going to try to do better. I'm going to do the best I know how to carve out time in the midst of the stress and the sadness and the insanity and tell some stories. And in the meantime, thanks for sticking with me. And now, the feedback. Hi, Chris. This is Melissa. I was just listening to, I guess, two episodes ago about your dog. And what a sweet, wonderful remembrance. I lost my dog last year, and my heart was out to you. I know what a big, a big painful thing that is. And uh, good for you. I'm a shelter mom, too. And gosh, I love my dogs. And you're right. There's not enough shelters giving chances, just like there's not enough people giving chances on hard people. And I just wanted to say thank you for your beautiful, touching, um, I'm crying at work, uh, remembrance and rest in peace, both of there. I mean, that's just so sweet. So I hope you have a, a great remembrance of her and hold her in your heart. She'll always be with you. Thank you for sharing. Thanks so much, Melissa. I'm really glad to hear that Dulcie's story blessed you, and that you found your own sweet shelter dog to enrich your life. I hope we can all work toward building a world where everybody gets a second chance, dogs and people alike. Eric of Georgia writes, Chris, I'm really sorry to hear about the passing of your dog. Losing four-legged members of our families can be just as hard as losing two-legged members. As sad as hearing how you had to say goodbye was, it was still very touching to hear how Dulcie was able to overcome the shelter odds and get four years with a loving family. Shelter pets truly are amazing. Our dog was taken from a county animal shelter by a rescue group on what would have been his last day. It will be nine years that we adopted him from the rescue group come September, and he has been just wonderful. I still think the happiest day in our dog's life was when we came home from the hospital after the birth of our daughter. They have adored each other ever since. On a completely different subject, I've been really enjoying The Lost and the Least. It amazes me, after all the world-building that you've already done, that you can still keep building and revealing more, like the recent revelation of Silas keeping track of runners' jobs and payments. 
and it all fits. No retcon grease required. I just want to keep offering you words of encouragement, because I enjoy your work so much. When you said you were going to be reducing the number of podcasts you would release this year to try to help fight burnout, there was a part of me that was disappointed to hear there wouldn't be as much content. But at the same time, I far prefer that to you burning out and quitting. Always looking forward to the next podcast, Eric. Thanks for writing in, Eric. As you heard in my writing update, I need all the encouragement I can get right now. Silas is a character whose purpose was gradually revealed to me through the process of writing this book. I knew at the beginning that he was Callie's mentor, and that he was a retired runner who had outlived all of his enemies. I knew that he was plugged in to what was happening on the street to an almost superhuman level, but it was a major discovery when I figured out why he knew so much, and why he was so well-trusted by so many people. I've learned a lot more about a lot of different topics since I started writing Metamore City, and one of the most important is the area of economics and systems of governance. It turns out that even societies made up of criminals develop systems for maintaining order and keeping each other honest. Otherwise, they can't function as societies. One book that was helpful for this was The Invisible Hook by Peter T. Leeson, which is all about the economics of 17th and 18th century pirates. It's a fun read, and if you're interested in behavioral economics or criminal societies, you should check it out. Over on the Fans of Metamore City group, Mark Stone had this question. Why don't the cops in Metamore use necromancy to interrogate murder victims? Great question, Mark. In Metamore City, true necromancy was forbidden knowledge. The gods had a set of servants who were taught the ways of the art, but they became too powerful and had to be destroyed. A few of their artifacts still exist, but the knowledge has largely been stamped out. There are wizards who flirt on the edges of necromancy. One of these is Tyria Kemler, Artax's old boss, whom we briefly met in the case of the Golden Egg. Tyria can animate the dead through summoning and binding an elemental spirit to inhabit the body. But these reanimated bodies have none of the memories or personality of their original person. They're basically constructs. Generally speaking, wizards cannot call up the spirits of the dead to speak to them. Nocturna can sometimes reach these souls via the dreamlands, as she did with Karenna in a Lightbringer carol. To do this, the spirit must be in the first hell, which is the home of the most virtuous of the dead. She also has to have a sympathetic link to them, through a place, item, or person. The longer the person's been gone, the stronger that link has to be. That's why Nocturna said she couldn't have reached Karenna at all without the help of a lemisil, which is a very powerful artifact that saw a lot of use in Karenna's hands. If a ghost is trapped between realms, then things are a bit easier. Sort of. Psychics like Abby, who have the right mix of ESP and telepathy, can find them and talk to them. But official Lightbringer policy says that ghosts of this sort are not real, that they're just psychic echoes called shades and not true spirits. Shades also exist and are much more common than real ghosts. The information that shades can provide is sometimes useful, but it's not considered reliable evidence and few enough size can speak to them that the practice of consulting them has not caught on. Plus, there's that whole stigma around things that smell of necromancy. Anybody who claims they can talk to the dead is going to have people looking at them funny. Thanks for the question! 
If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under our Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.